Hello, and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great episode for you guys this time. But before we get started, we need to do a couple of little disclaimers. We're not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind. So please don't take what we say on the show as medical advice. If you have a medical issue, please see a doctor. Okay? All right. Let's jump right in for today's episode. First article... Moms who drink even small amounts of caffeine while pregnant may have shorter kids than women who abstain, study suggests. Alana Akhtar wrote this article. Drinking less than the recommended limit of caffeine per day while pregnant could still negatively impact a child's height, according to a new study. The study published October 31st in the Journal of American Medical Association found that kids of women who drank less than 200 milligrams of caffeine upper limit was about two cups of coffee recommended by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists were shorter than those whose moms drank little to no coffee. The study observed two groups of pregnant women who had their blood caffeine concentration measured through their first trimester. In the first group, 788 children of pregnant women who drank about 36 milligrams of caffeine per day, which is about half a cup of coffee, were shorter by almost 1.5 centimeters at 7 years old than those of women who had little to no caffeine. In the second group, children whose mothers consumed the caffeine equivalent of 2 cups of coffee per day were shorter by 0.68 centimeters to 2.2 centimeters between ages 4 and 8. Height differences began at four years old, and the gap widened each successive year until the children turned eight. Our findings indicate that maternal caffeine consumption is associated with long-term decreases in child height, the authors of the study say. This association occurred even with maternal consumption below current recommendations of 200 milligrams per day. The study authors said height differences among the children were similar to what's seen with kids of smokers and non-smokers. Though national guidelines allow for mild caffeine consumption, some studies like the recent JAMA study indicate any amount of caffeine while pregnant could impact the fetus or baby. A recent National Institutes of Health study on caffeine consumption during pregnancy found people who drank a half a cup of coffee a day had slightly smaller babies compared to those who abstained. And one review published in 2020 found any level of caffeine consumption may increase a pregnant woman's risk for miscarriage, stillbirth, and low birth weight. Pregnant people who drink coffee might have shorter kids, but drinking caffeine as a child likely won't impact height. Experts previously told Insider pregnant people limiting their coffee or tea should be mindful of other sources of caffeine like chocolate, soft drinks, and some medications. Wow, that's incredible. Be careful out there, people. Next article. The do's and don'ts of mouth taping. Doctors weigh in on the viral wellness trend. And this article is by Katie Kindelin. For the past three months, Lauren Bostick, a Texas-based mom of two, has added a new step to her nightly routine, taping her mouth shut. Bostick, an entrepreneur and founder of The Skinny Confidential, a lifestyle product line, book, and podcast, said she considers the technique called mouth taping a positive addition to her wellness routine. She says she wakes up with more energy and feels like she can breathe better throughout the day. The first time I did it, I woke up with more energy, she told Good Morning America. It's actually not hard once you start doing it. 
I'm surprised, but I actually want to do it each night. Bostick said she first heard about mouth taping at night from multiple wellness experts she interviewed for her podcast, who praised it as a way to reap the health benefits of nose breathing. One of those experts, Dr. Andrew Halberman, a neurobiology professor at Stanford University, has touted the benefits of nasal breathing on social media and his own podcast, The Huberman Lab. Huberman proposes that breathing through the nose instead of the mouth may not only help prevent the spread of infection, but may also help improve teeth hygiene, facial alignment, and at night provide deeper sleep. Dr. Gregory Levitin, a board-certified doctor at New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai, echoes some of these beliefs, suggesting that nasal breathing has some well-researched medical benefits. Functionally, it's healthier to breathe through your nose. There are many studies that have shown that not only does the nose warm the air and filter the air, it moisturizes the air for us and is also associated with healthier sleep. There have been some small studies linking mouth taping with modest improvements in snoring and sleep apnea, but no large-scale trial has been able to prove its benefits, the do's and don'ts of mouth taping. According to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, people should always consult a doctor before trying mouth taping. The main danger with the technique is if someone has undiagnosed sleep apnea, before you put any tape over your mouth, talk to your doctor or healthcare provider to see if it's going to be safe for you. Women especially are often underdiagnosed because they don't always present with the classic symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea, like loud snoring. Doctors say that a person who tries mouth taping is likely trying to feel better, in which case they should seek medical care first to see if there is a reason they're not properly nasal breathing. Doctors also caution that mouth taping should be looked at as a diagnostic tool, not as a permanent fix or something to be done long term. If a person feels better after trying mouth taping for a night or two, they should still see a doctor because there are many non-surgical options to help people breathe better. It's an indicator of perhaps maybe taking the next step and actually going to see somebody to determine if there's a problem that can be fixed. Doctors stress that people should not use commercial tape, duct tape, or any other non-medical tape for the technique. If people do decide to try mouth taping, porous tape is recommended as it is intended for use on human skin. Doctors say that people can also improve their nasal breathing through lifestyle modifications instead of resorting to mouth taping. Meditation and yoga, as well as healthy diet and consistent exercise, each contribute to better breathing. Doctors say it's easy to see why a tool like mouth taping may become popular because people are trying to feel better by breathing better. Signs that a person may not be properly breathing through their nose at night include waking up tired after a full night's sleep or waking up with a dry mouth, sore throat, or bad breath. Millions, if not billions of people don't breathe properly every day. This results in inefficient sleep and makes us more tired. It may also contribute to airway diseases like asthma or allergies because we're not clearing the pathogens or germs and dust that filter through the air. Bostick says in her experience, mouth taping does not hurt and is not as awkward as she thought it would be when she first heard it described. She places an H-shaped piece of medical tape on her lips each night. I think people imagine this huge piece of masking tape over their mouth. That's not how it is. You can essentially breathe out of the sides of your mouth, but your mouth is just closed. 
Bostick shared her own journey with nightly mouth taping in a TikTok video that has over 21,000 likes. She says she sees more and more people giving mouth taping a try. After doing it consistently for three months, she says she plans to keep the technique as part of her nightly routine. I'm a multitasker and a habit stalker, she says. So if I can do something while I'm asleep, that's going to make me have more energy, make me feel better, and affect my facial symmetry over time. I'm all about it. So, interesting stuff. If you want to know more about mouth taping, go do a Google search and check it out online. Next article. Nose picking was always gross. Now a study says it may lead to late-onset Alzheimer's. And Christine Roselle wrote this article. Nose picking may be more than just a social faux pas. A study out of Australia suggests there may be a link between nose picking and developing late-onset Alzheimer's disease. The study titled Chlamydia Pneumoniae can infect the central nervous system contributes to Alzheimer's disease risk was published in the journal Scientific Reports. It examined the ability of bacteria to travel up the nose and into the brain in mice. Chlamydia pneumoniae is a respiratory tract pathogen, but can also infect the central nervous system, according to the studies, noting that there is an increasingly evident connection between C. pneumoniae infection in the central nervous system and the development of late-onset dementia. The bacteria traveling between the nose and the brain in mice were the first to show that chlamydia pneumoniae can directly go up the nose and into the brain, where it can set off pathologies that look like Alzheimer's disease, say doctors. In a press release, we saw this happen in a mouse model, and the evidence is potentially scary for humans as well. St. John's is the head of the Clem Jones Center for Neurobiology and a stem cell research at Griffin University in southeast Queensland, Australia. In mice, CNS infections have been shown to occur weeks to months after intranasal inoculation, researchers noted. In this study, however, the scientists showed that mice's nose and facial nerves along the olfactory bulb and brain were infected within three days of being exposed to the bacteria. C. pneumoniae infection also resulted in dysregulation of key pathways involved in Alzheimer's disease, pathogenesis at 7 and 28 days after inoculation, said the study. When a mouse's nose was injured and infected with the C. pneumoniae, there was an increased peripheral nerve and olfactory bulb infection. The next steps will be to replicate the study with human patients to determine if human noses are similar avenues for bacterial infection. We need to do this study in humans and confirm whether the same pathway operates in the same way. It's research that has been proposed by many people but not yet completed. What we do know is that these same bacteria are present in humans, but we haven't worked out how they get there. Alzheimer's is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States for adults over the age of 65, according to the Centers for Disease Control, and the seventh leading cause of death for adults overall. About 6.5 million people in the United States are living with Alzheimer's disease, said the CDC, making it the most common form of dementia in older adults. Alzheimer's disease does not have a known cause, says the CDC. In the meantime, doctors are advising people to refrain from picking their nose or plucking their nose hairs, as this could damage the inside of the nose, increasing the risk of any kind of infection. We don't want to damage the inside of our nose, and picking and plucking can do that. If you damage the lining of the nose, you can increase how many bacteria can go up into your brain. 
Wow, that is terrifying. Next article. A woman volunteered to get bitten by hundreds of mosquitoes to help create a new malaria vaccine. Then she got malaria. Hilary Bruek wrote this article. When Carolina Reed arrived for her vaccine, the mosquitoes were hungry. Roughly 200 females had been starved overnight just waiting for her. Inside a lab where others were enveloped in heavy bodysuits, hooded and zipped so no skin was exposed, the only special equipment redeployed against the insects was her own body odor. No showering beforehand, researchers had told her to better attract the bugs. She quietly lowered her smelly arm over a takeout container where a troop of roughly 200 female mosquitoes was silently flying around. Knowing the insects would prefer to feast in darkness, Reed covered the whole contraption with a towel and waited for them to land. It was not fun, says the 30-year-old chef from Seattle. She sat in silence waiting for the 10-minute bloodbath to be over as her forearm got covered in bites. I would have screamed if I said anything out loud, she said. These mosquitoes had an important job to do. They injected Reed with a special modified malaria parasite, one safely designed to stop growing once it got inside her liver, which is where malaria parasites mature in people before they re-enter the bloodstream and cause disease. The mosquitoes were her vaccinators, injecting a new type of anti-malaria vaccine into her in a small clinical trial run by malaria experts from the University of Washington. The reason malaria researchers use mosquitoes as vaccinators is because it allows them to quickly test out new vaccine candidates without having to go through the entire process of manufacturing a shot. Instead, the mosquitoes do the work of growing the modified bacteria meant to train the body to fight off malaria. Mosquitoes do the work of growing the modified medicine meant to train the body to fight off malaria. If a successful vaccine is subsequently developed, it will be manufactured as a regular shot with needles. Mosquitoes are highly efficient delivery bots to introduce those attenuated versions of the parasite that may prove to be highly effective in preventing malaria, say doctors. The U.S. Navy has been doing this kind of vaccination by mosquito bite for decades, hoping that one day a successful vaccine may be used by its sailors. Reed was vaccinated by mosquitoes not one, not two, but five times over a period of several months for a grand total of more than 600 bites. Each visit, she'd got bitten by a few hundred mosquitoes, receive a few hundred dollars, then go for blood draws regularly in the days afterwards. Hot, red, burning reactions were the norm for a few days afterward. It just became this place that I knew the people, she said at the lab. It's like your morning coffee shop. Finally, after several months of bites and blood tests, Reed was bitten one last time, this time by five real infection-producing malaria mosquitoes in what's called the vaccine challenge. Challenge trials are critical for malaria vaccine research because they give researchers a controlled environment to figure out how well different people's immune systems are responding to their jabs, or bites in this case. Reed was feeling confident about her malaria protection. It had been several months already since her vaccinations, plenty of time for her immune system to develop a good response. So it came as quite a surprise when several days after her malaria mosquito challenge, her blood tested positive for the parasite. Reed had malaria. 
She burst into tears. This wasn't how a successful vaccine trial was supposed to end, she thought. All of this research, all of this work that all of these people did, they didn't get the outcome they wanted, she said. Larry is a tricky disease to prepare a vaccine against. It's a stealth pathogen. Once it enters the body, it makes a beeline for the liver, spending at least six days there before people get symptoms. There are some highly effective, well-established malaria drugs available, but the disease remains deadly because treatments need to start early and many people don't realize they have it until it's too late. In 2018, for example, a 24-year-old Peace Corps volunteer serving overseas died of malaria after she complained of dizziness, nausea, headaches, dehydration, fatigue, and chills for about a week. A 23-year-old Navy sailor deployed to Liberia was killed by the same parasite in 2009. Their deaths represent just two of the more than half a million malaria fatalities happening around the world every year. Many are in newborns. The U.S. got rid of malaria in the late 1940s by spraying the toxic bug killer DDT around hot spots. The first malaria vaccine, Moscorix, or RTS-S, was recommended by the WHO last year, but it's only about 30% effective, and that's with four doses, providing protection for maybe four years. Disease experts would like to find a vaccine that can maintain at least 75% effectiveness. A new malaria vaccine candidate just tested by the University of Oxford may work better than Moscorix, with researchers touting about a 77% of efficacy. But the reality is we only know that vaccine performed well for one malaria season, about six months, and it also requires at least four shots. That's no easy feat when you're working with children and families living in remote areas, often far from health services. Kubin, the vaccine researcher, said being in a trial like the one Reed participated in requires battling every impulse in our bodies. But he's tried mosquito bite vaccines too. He says if it accelerates the safe and ethical evaluation of the malaria vaccine, I'm all for it. After her malaria diagnosis, Reed was swiftly prescribed medicine. While the drug wiped her out for a couple of days, she never experienced any malaria symptoms. Treatment was swift, boring, and effective, she said. But the diagnosis also meant she had to quit the study early with around $4,200 in hand instead of the $5,500 she initially thought to make during the trial. Now that it's all over, people often applaud Reed when she tells them about her challenge. Most people are like, wow, how brave of you, she said. She finds it weird and doesn't think her participation is anything in need of praise. She knows clinical trials follow rigorous safety protocols, plus she's making money doing it. So don't worry, she said. Researchers will use the information gleaned from her malaria infection to determine the next steps in vaccine development. Since this vaccine was about 50% effective, they can use information about both the successful and the unsuccessful immune responses like reads to work on better formulation. If they find it, mosquitoes may one day truly be just a nuisance instead of tiny flying assassins. Wow. Hey, next article. A woman had her eye removed after she showered while wearing contact lenses and it got infected by a parasite found in tap water. Catherine Schuster Bryce wrote this article. A woman had her left eye removed after she caught a difficult-to-treat parasitic infection from showering while wearing her contact lenses. This particular type of parasitic infection is rare but serious, and it's caused by microscopic organisms that infect the outer covering of the eye called the cornea. 
It's most common in contact lens wearers, but anyone can get it, according to the CDC. Mary Mason, 54, from the UK, wore 30-day contact lenses and believes the organism entered her eye when she showered without removing them. It would have gotten under the lens, then multiplied, so my eye was riddled with it, she told BBC News. Showering while wearing contact lenses or cleaning lenses with tap water puts people at a higher risk of catching this, according to the CDC. It can also cause severe pain and blindness if untreated. John Dart, honorary professor at UCLA Institute of Ophthalmology in the UK, told BBC News that about 150 to 200 people in the UK catch the infection each year. Very few lose their eye, but about half will lose a substantial amount of vision. Mason first noticed that something was wrong in 2015. I started feeling like I had a foreign body in my eye, like a bit of sand or grit. When you rub it, it will normally go away, but it wouldn't, she said. Symptoms of acanthamoeba keratis can include eye pain, blurred vision, sensitivity to light, and the sensation of something in the eye. The CDC recommends that people speak with a doctor if they get any of these symptoms. An optician advised Mason to go to a hospital, and doctors diagnosed her with cathamoeba keratis and treated it with various medications, eye drops, and three corneal transplants, but they were all unsuccessful. There was just lots of hospital visits, lots of eye drops, lots of operations and procedures, and lots of pain, Mason told a UK-based news agency. After five years, the decision was made to remove her left eye, and she has worn a false replacement since the operation two years ago. I do struggle sometimes because my vision on my left side is rubbish. Well, it's not there. It's quite hard walking down the street when you've got people whizzing by you, and it makes you jump a bit because you don't expect it, she said. Wow, that is scary. So if you experience any of those symptoms, go see an eye doctor right away. And speaking of eyes and scary experiences, one final article for the day. I recently removed 23 contact lenses from a patient's eye. In my 20 years as a doctor, I've never seen anything like it. Lauren Crosby Medlicott wrote this article. It had been a manic Monday at the clinic with eye emergencies that had come up over the weekend in addition to our routine appointments. Toward the end of the day, a patient in her mid-70s who wore daily contact lenses came in saying she felt like she had something in her eye that she couldn't get out. Even though we asked seniors to come in once a year for checkups, this woman had skipped appointments and hadn't been into the office in two years. Although her vision was blurry, it was the pain that bothered her the most. My mind jumped to the possibilities of what it could be. A piece of broken contact lens, a scratch on a cornea, an infection, an eyelash, or debris from makeup. I'd only know for sure once I did the examination. To start, I used an anesthetic and a yellow stain to identify any scratches or foreign bodies. I couldn't see anything on the cornea from the initial examination, so I proceeded to manually pull on the lower and upper lids to see if there was anything in the upper or lower fornix. These are the deep corners of the eye, like little pockets of the eyelid where things occasionally get stuck. I didn't see much, just a little bit of mucus, which could be natural response to irritation. I was puzzled. To continue my investigation, I used an instrument called an eyelid speculum that would both keep the lower and upper lid open at the same time for a longer period of time so I could freely use my hands to find out what was going on. 
When I asked her to look down, I could see the edges of a couple of contacts stuck to each other. Pulling them out, I felt like I could see more and more and asked my assistant to get my phone to record the removal. Asking the patient to look down again, I could see a huge dark blob of contact lenses stuck to her eye. It almost looked like a second pupil. I gently started using a Q-tip to peel the lenses apart one by one, like you would deal a deck of cards. They were coming out in a chain, drooping down her lid. There were a lot of contact lenses. I thought this could be my Guinness Book of World Record moment. In my nearly 20 years of practice, I had never seen anything like it. The patient couldn't believe it either and asked if I was sure about the number I was counting. After we removed the biggest blob, we retrieved a few more from the corners, carefully flushing her eye out with distilled sterile water, removing some of the mucus, and we sent her home with anti-inflammatory drops. She said she felt much better already. Laying out the contact lenses on a tissue, I separated each one with fine tip forceps and counted 23 contact lenses. Some of them were yellow and some light blue because the natural color of a contact lens is light blue. The stain I put in her eyes to examine had colored some of the lenses yellow. I posted the video of the examination and it went viral straight away. Optometrists from South America, Mexico, and Europe were using the video to educate people about making sure they take their daily contact lenses out of their eyes every single night. These are light, flimsy lenses and should not be used for more than 24 hours. The patient was very fortunate. She could have lost her vision, scratched her cornea, or gotten an infection. I begged her not to wear contact lenses again and give her eyes a break, but she's gone straight back to wearing them. I saw her a month after the examination and she was doing really well, feeling much more comfortable and seeing clearly again. Although I can't be certain of how she managed to forget to remove all these lenses, it could be because she had been wearing contact lenses for 30 years. When a person wears contact lenses over a long period of time, it can cause desensitization of the corneal nerve endings. She wouldn't have felt something like 23 contact lenses as sharply. It also could have been her age. Older people's eyelid fornix, the least sensitive space, is much deeper, and the contact lenses just sat there for a while, not bothering her. I feel really lucky to have captured this on video to remind people to remove their contact lenses every single night. This was a happy ending, but it could have gone sour really quickly. Wow, that is terrifically scary. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions after listening to today's episode, you can shoot us an email. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We will put that into the show notes, as well as all of the articles we talked about on the show today. And please join us again next week when we talk about more weird, wacky, and wild medical cases. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!